Welcome back, everybody, to Refuge. This is episode four. This week, we have Pastor Micah. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> so, this is your first time on this podcast. Which first is time. Um, let's just start off really easy. Um, how long have you been a pastor? I've been a pastor since 2010, July. So, 10? Oh, no. 12 oh, I'm years? Sorry. I'm sorry. We got to cut all that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a pastor since July 2011. 2011. Okay. So, so going it's, on it's coming up on 11 years, 11 years this summer. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, I didn't really go into this with anybody else, but you're special for this one. Um, what brought you, because obviously you come from the great lineage of Pastor Ty. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, golly. What made you, did you, did you initially feel a calling on your life or did you feel like you ran away from it and then they jonah you back in? I don't feel like I ever ran away from it. Growing up, I never pictured myself being a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, my mind works more. I was more, uh, I was involved in the church, uh, mm-hmm. involved in youth group, uh, loved going on mission trips, all those kind of sorts of things. And always knew that the church would be a part of my life. I didn't think I would be in the leadership or a pastor. Uh, and so I was headed towards a life in the business world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a business finance degree from Cal State Fullerton. So nice. uh, go Titans. <laughs> and uh, so graduated. And then I started working for a large construction company on a big project up in L.A. Gotcha. So, yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't even headed towards ministry till I had been working in the in the workforce for a couple of years. Gotcha. And what did, did you have like a sort of epiphany moment? Was there like, what, what made that like all of a sudden construction to South Shores? Um, that's a good question. I, I think after working a number of years, uh, just in the workforce, uh, I, I think just in a time of prayer, I was praying and, it just dawned on me when I get to the end of my life, what do I, what do I want to have said that I have done? Not, not how much money I've made, not, um, you know, I'm not working per se, but like, what, what is like the end product? Mm -hmm. And it quickly like hit me. I, I want to have the most in, I want to have impact on people's lives. I don't want to get to the end of my life of like, Hey, Kids, I spent all those hours working and look at this fancy bridge or fancy road. Um, you know, if I am away from my kids, it's like I, I was there because I was helping someone who was in need um, or helping them see Jesus to be um, even more true and more beautiful. So that, that's in that moment, that's kind of where my mind was started going. And um, so then really what, I see is the call in the ministry is my wife and I, who we were married, we'd already been married uh, a year or two. Uh, we started praying and that is really where I, I see our, our start of even thinking about ministry. Gotcha. Sweet. Everybody uh, up to this point, we've talked about on the podcast, we've talked about their different processes of how they go about their sermon prep, right? Pastor Ty is very um, <clears throat> thorough, we'll say. Multi-page documents, no tech, no no hiccups. Uh, Pastor Derek has a bit of a different layout. And um, what's what's your process for that? What 
What's like the very first thing? So you're assigned a passage that week. You have to preach on Sunday. What do you do? Well, probably my first thing is I try to look at the passage at least two weeks out. Okay. So um, just so I'm started starting to think about it, to mm -hmm. sit in the passage. And I'll probably read the passage 10, 15, 20 times. Okay. Uh, I'll, I will also check out the passages surrounding the text mm -hmm. just to kind of see where it is in the flow of thought of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and then I will start outlining. I, I'll kind of outline the passage um, to kind of see the contour of it, uh, to see what the writer was trying to communicate to his original audience. And so really that first while in the passage, I'm really trying to get to like, what is the heart of the message? Uh, because many times uh, in looking at a passage, it's like playing Jeopardy, right? We're given the answer, mm -hmm. uh, but we don't necessarily, aren't, we are not always given the question. So uh, my first thing, you know, in outlining it, the passage is to like come up with what is the big question uh, that is being answered or what, yeah, what is the big question? And then what is the answer to that, that question? Right. Um, once I have that, then I, a lot of it falls, seems to fall into place. But, um, if you looked at like how many words I've written or like what I had on a document, it wouldn't be as verbose. You're like, you even look at it like, that's all you've done. But <laughs> for me, once I always have like the heart of the passage, everything yeah. seems to fall into place much quicker. So gotcha. So I even have like one thing I, I do is um, it's really easy when you're trying to find the kind of the heart of the passage is mm -hmm. your mind really easy, easily starts thinking about like different illustrations or different other texts you could bring in to support it. Well, right. um, I have, a, I also keep another document where I just, it's ideas. I, I will just write those down so I don't lose those, but I'm not trying to force those ideas into the text. I really want to get to like, what is the heart of this text saying? Um, and so then once I have that, then I'm able to stay true to the text while, you know, different ideas and illustrations uh, get placed and if they're, if they're usable or not. So Gotcha. Before we jump into your message from the 27th, um, is there anything you want us all to keep in mind before we listen to it? Anything like don't get triggered or <laughs> anything that's, that's important to keep in mind before we jump into that part of First Corinthians? When we say don't get triggered, don't we just automatically trigger people? Pretty much. And, um, that, that is also the goal of this podcast. Yeah. It says refuge, but it's yeah. really the trigger. Yeah, podcast. it's really trigger. Yeah. <laughs> um, before you listen to this message, I, uh, in preparing it, I, you know, if only given 30 minutes, I took 34, but only, only being given 30 minutes, uh, when I started preparing, I quickly became aware of just how many different ways people have been hurt by uh, the subject being how we as Christians are to view and approach sex. And that's for married people and single people. And, and so it was a challenge when I was writing it to do it in such a way that was gracious and tender, uh, as, but as well as like had some meat for people. And so I really was trying to balance that uh, kind of tightrope because that, that, 
doesn't always come very easily. And right. so when I gave it on Sunday, I think it came together pretty well. But on Thursday night, which um, is when I kind of finished it, or not Thursday afternoon, mm-hmm. when, I, when I somewhat completed it, I was unsure just because it felt like, man, I, I'm not wanting to intentionally offend anyone. But at the same time, we have to be true to God's word. And so how do I present this in a way that is true to God's word as well as in a way that people will hear it and be able to apply it as uh, the Apostle Paul wants us to. So, Gotcha. Well, everybody, here's the message from February 27th. We're going to get right into God's Word. So if you could, again, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. And real quick before we read it, I am so glad that we are a church that goes through books of the Bible section by section because if you don't, it's really easy to skip sections of the Bible. And this section would have been really easy to skip, okay? So we're going to get into it. Hopefully that uh, perks your intrigue. Ready? Here we go. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for men not to have sexual relations with a woman. Interpretation. Is it good for men and women to have sex? Man, you guys are like, whoa, oh man, what a way to start. Okay. And if, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, don't worry, people have felt uncomfortable all morning. But several years ago, uh, when we were down in San Juan and, and I'd preached this sermon, uh, one of our senior saints came up to me afterwards. We were, we were talking with a bunch of people and she came up and she said, I heard you say the S word. I was kind of taken back by it. Really? When? She said, up there on stage just a few minutes ago, I heard you say sex. So I'm just going to give you a warning, okay? Over the next few minutes, I'm going to be dropping quite a few S words. Okay, so but back to my question. Now you've thought about it. Is it good for men and women to have sex? Oh, oh, we're divided. (laughs) The answer is it depends. It depends. And really, sex isn't about sex. And so to understand this section of scripture, we actually have to go back to chapter six. So the last two weeks, Pastor Eric, when he preached last week, and and Pastor Ty two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, because it is the anchor text for this entire section. It is the lens in which we look through to understand what God is saying through the writer, Apostle Paul. Okay, so flip back into your Bibles, just one chapter, chapter 6, verse 9 through 11 with me. And here's what it says. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And when the Bible ever has a list like that, theologians call it a vice list. Well, let's continue. And... Such were some of you. I think the Apostle Paul was being nice. I think he's really saying, and such were all of you were in that group. 
And I think that means all of us. Such were all of us. None of us were, were born Christians. But, and in your Bibles, if, if you own a Bible, or even if it's the Pew Bible, you should circle that but if you have a pen. But, such, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Yes, amen. Yeah, no, no. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And that is how we approach this section, that we were all lost, we were all a part of that vice list. And it's nothing that we did on our own. And it is all on the shoulders of Jesus who left the riches of heaven to come down to earth to face hardship and temptation and the many other things that are pulling on our flesh to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, then to be raised again so that we may be washed, we may be sanctified, and we may be justified. And so that is how we approach this section, that only by Christ and him crucified that we are made holy, that we, again, we were washed, that we were made clean, that we were, we were spotted with sin, and now we are as white as snow. We were sanctified. We were made holy, a set apart people, and that we were justified. We were, our sin was paid for. And it is because of this that when you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, when you experience that, you cannot go back. You cannot go back to what you previous were, to that vice list. And if you, this section can be summed up in two different songs, okay? The vice list can be represented by Bon Jovi's uh, song, It's My Life. Okay, any of you heard that song? All right, it's kind of a catchy tune on, a billion, on YouTube. It's been seen over a billion times. But God, right, can be represented by Jesus paid it all. Then what? All to him I, I owe. So it's my life. I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want it, because... I want it. But because of Christ and what he has done for us, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And that is all of me. And so it, when you've experienced Jesus paying it all, that is why we carry ourselves and we conduct ourselves differently. We even have conversations, conflict with believers differently. That's why we talked about it two weeks ago. We had the hard conversation seminar with Dr. Sean McDowell saying, you know what? When we are in hard conversations with believers and non-believers, we needed to do it such a way that points to Jesus. Last week, Pastor Eric, he talked about how, how we conduct ourselves with our bodies is important because, because before we were spotted, now we are spotless and we owe it all to him. And every one of us sitting here has a past. We have a history. We, we have a, a rap sheet. And I just want you to sit in the knowledge that you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And so with that, we get to our passage day, chapter, chapter seven. Again, that is the lens in which we are going to look at the first half of chapter seven. So Paul then goes about answering this idea that sex is dirty, that if you are a true follower of Christ, that you should abstain from it. 
So again, last week, Pastor Eric, he talked really kind of the one end of the spectrum. He was looking at the passage, the end of chapter six, that was talking to Christians, probably more liberal Christians that were trying to fit in with culture. To this passage, we go to the other end of the spectrum of Christians who are trying to do everything right to almost earn their status within the church to be the super Christian. They're creating rules upon rules, kind of like in the Old Testament, like the who? Like the Pharisees, right? Creating rules so that they get puffed up within their own circles. Or, or not too distant a few, uh, generations ago, right? We never went dancing. We didn't go to movies. We don't use any alcohol, right? I don't drink or chew or go with girls that do. Right? And we can make these rules for ourselves. So in first century Corinth, your status was determined by a variety of factors, like your occupational prestige, your income, your wealth, your education, what school you went to, what circles you rode in, even your religious purity. And that culture had, couldn't have helped it, but seeped into the church. And you start to see this playing out in this section where we're out of a desire to do what was right, but almost more of a pride. I want to advance within the church. And so I'm going to even do things that other Christians aren't willing to do. I'm going to be that super Christian. But you know what? Thank God that there is only one super Christian and his name is Jesus Christ. And so today we're looking at the question, when you have been washed, when you've been sanctified, when you have been justified, how are we to view sex? How are we to view it? Is it bad? Is it good? It depends. Okay, ready? Here we go. Number one, Jesus paid it all, all my marriage to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, all my marriage to him I go. Let's get back into the word. Let's go back to verse one of chapter seven. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have any authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, even reading that, like our modern mind just goes, oh, what is, what is going on here? This text, right? I, I don't own myself. My spouse owns me. What, what are you talking about? Well, first, we, we need to talk about kind of what this text is or is not before we get to what it is, okay? Um, well, first, this text does show us that Paul and the church in Corinth have been pen pals, and we're not privy to those letters. Man, I wish we were, but we're not. But this text, what it is not, is not a you own your spouse, so your spouse needs to fulfill all your di desires whenever you want. This is not a you should feel guilty if your spouse screws up sexually because you have not fulfilled them. Because this passage has historically at times been used more as a weapon than a goal to be, uh, to be shooting towards together. 
And Paul, I mean, understandably, he calls later on in this chapter, he calls people who are married burners. People who burn with almost an uncontrollable flame that they have to go get married. And I'm, I'm many of us, so all of us who are married in this room are burners, and I'm a full card-carrying burner. I was married at 21 in college. You can call me a super burner. <laughs> okay? But again, this passage has been used as a destructive weapon. And what Paul is trying to do, he is trying to assist us in a conversation with a posture of humility. He's saying that we need to have understanding and sacrifice for one another to be a servant for each other in this very tender topic. Paul continues to talk about this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 28, where he says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And so with this conversation with our spouses, for those of us who are married, we are to be nourishing one another, pointing them back to Jesus at all times. Not to ourselves, not to our own desires, but what, what is going to benefit them? What is going to help them? And even in this passage, what Paul is saying would have been radical in the first century. To say that a woman owns her husband just as much as a husband owns his wife, that they are on equal standing with one another, that is crazy in the first century. And really, it is crazy in the 21st century. But we are called to a higher standard. And I understand loving your spouse is hard, especially to keep our eye on the ball, to keep them pointed towards Christ. And it's almost easier to have success in any other realm, isn't it? If you look at the list of the top 10 wealthiest men in the world, right? These are the men that could never outspend all their expenditures. They, they could do whatever they wanted with their time. All 10 of them, 10 for 10 are divorced. Talk about at some point the woman that you have vowed to live the rest of your life with, to love and to cherish. At some point, they're like, man, I'm going to pay billions to get away from you. Right? And we can do the same thing. There have been times where I've had to apologize to Camden because my choices, it has been obvious, they weren't with that aim of pointing her back to Jesus. In verse 3, it talks about that husbands and wives are supposed to give each other their conjugal rights, which, side note, I hate the word conjugal because I think of prison every time. Okay? But conjugal, all, all it means is relating to marriage or the marriage relationship. Husbands, you might need to give your wife her conjugal right of a foot rub tonight. Just, just saying, okay? Any wives in favor? Anyway, no, no, we don't need to take hands, okay? But wives, you might need to allow your husband to have time with his friends. Whatever is going to speak love to your spouse, because what Paul is describing for us in the book, in this chapter in Corinthians, is that two people who are, who are washed, who are sanctified, who are justified, are going to continue in wrestling in how to live this life, living it and pointing each other to Christ. And part of that is sex and the sexual intimacy that is given to couples, the freedom in that. And yes, there might be even time to take breaks. Like, like it says in verse 5, look there with me. 
It says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so there might be times to agree to abstain, but only for the goal that the other person would have more time in prayer and thinking and growing in their relationship with Christ. And it is in my experience in, in helping counsel couples, the time, the, I've known couples that they have abstained for years. And guess what? What happens to the relationship? It deteriorates. It goes dry. The intimacy isn't there. There's not the reminder of, hey, I am half of this relationship and I'm supposed to love them more than I love myself. And so really sex within the confines of marriage isn't about sex, but it's something far greater than it. It is to point to Christ. Think of communion, right? We're going to be sharing in communion next Sunday. What is communion? It is far more than just the elements in which we take. I have never had one person come up to me and say, hey, you know that little like to-go communion cups you guys have been handing out? I mean, I just love that little wafer that tastes like a piece of cardboard. And that juice, oh, it tastes exactly like the real blood of Jesus. Like I haven't, I love it. I have never had anyone say they like it, but we don't do it because we like it. Why do we do it? To remind ourselves that we are in covenant with the one true king and what he has done and what we look forward to in the future. And it is a reminder of that intimate relationship that we have with him and with each other and that we are in this together. And that is exactly what sex is within the confines of marriage, a reminder of that covenant with your bride or with your groom that, you know what, we are going to be together until death does us part, pointing each other to Jesus. That is how Paul is saying that we are to approach sex. And, it, and it's easy to get busy. It's easy to neglect our spouses. And this passage also talks about divorce. Man, if you want to go into deep waters. Let me just sum it like this. God hates it. He despises it. He wants us to go to every other avenue before we come to it. Because you know what? It doesn't represent Christ in the church. It represents, you know what? Our fallenness and, seeking and, and falling into it. In the past two years here at church, couples within church and couples that we've been praying for, Man, it is my experience that our marriages have been under attack. It, COVID hasn't helped marriages by and far. It, 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 has, it has deteriorated them or it's struggled them. It's caused tension. And we have prayed for more people and more marriages than I can ever remember. And if that's you here this morning, man, just know that your church family just wants to wrap our arms around you this morning. And some of you might be sitting here saying, you know what? I have been hurt so much by my spouse. I can't even think about going to that place with them. You might be sitting here and, and realizing that, that relationships that, that when you start thinking about bring up crippling hurt, where something has been done or said probably repeatedly that causes so much pain. And, and I don't know your story. Again, what Paul is giving us, he is giving us something to shoot for. But if you are in that position this morning, I would say, 
you know, reach out for help. We have so many resources here at church, the pastoral staff, our, our counseling ministry, the prayer tent, whatever it is, be reach out because we would love to walk alongside of you, encouraging you in your relationship. Because this conversation is, again, one aspect of a multidimensional relationship that is ultimately to point to Christ. And what better way to point to Christ if there is great reconciliation in your life and in your relationship? And so, again, sex is by f- far more than just the physical act. So Jesus paid it all, all my marriage to him I owe. Number two, Jesus paid it all, all my singleness to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, all my singleness to him I owe. Now, this is not the point in which all you married folk take your morning nap, okay? This is not, this is not nappy time because 50% of you at some point will be single again, right? How many of you have seen the, the movie, The Notebook, Right? It's been out 15, 20 years. Wow, more people than the 930 saw it. Anyway, spoiler alert, the old couple at the very end get into the same bed. They go to bed and they're holding hands and they die the same night, right? There's them and then there's the rest of us, okay? So 50% of married people will be single again. And so we will know, we will need to know how to be single, okay? So here we go. Look at verse six. Now is a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as myself, which, side note, he was single, okay? I wish they were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There you are, you burners. <laughs> okay? So but how Paul, so Paul talks about singleness is that singleness is a gift on the same level as marriage. They're not, there's not one higher gift. It is not a promotion to be married. It's not like you've ascended to a higher order, but singleness is a gift. Now, let me ask you this. Has the church, broad church, has the church treated singleness on par with marriage? Well, I don't trust our answers. I want to ask someone who's single. And this week we did. Her name is Jessica. She has never been married and she was willing to sit down and talk to us about singleness. And so here, I want you to check it out. What's been your experience being single in the church? It's not been great, actually. I feel like the church really promotes marriage as like you've made it, you've arrived, you've had five babies or two and a half kids, whatever it is. Um, and therefore, you must be happy in that life. And if you're single in the church, you, there might be something wrong or we need to fix that. Or Have you gotten this both from like the pulpit and the people out there who are equally promoting marriage as a... I would say kind of equal. There's like comments here and there from the pulpit where pastors will say stuff about, oh, I, I knew them when they were when they were not dating and now they're together and now look at this beautiful family. And mm. I don't know, that, that I think it comes from kind of both sides. Got it. Now, do you think it's harder to be single in the church or harder to be single out in the world? I think it's harder to be single in the church because really? I think the picture of family and marriage is so prominent in scripture. And I think it's a really beautiful picture that the Lord paints for us. Um, But I think the church takes that as kind of the only route that somebody could go on. And um, 
be content and be joyful and have a fulfilling life. There's really not, I don't think I've ever heard from the pulpit or from anyone else that singleness is a gift and singleness can be a really beautiful thing. That kind of stings a little bit, doesn't it? It is easier, it is harder to be single in the church than it is out in the world. That, if anything, that should sting a little. So if you haven't heard it from the pulpit, singleness is a gift. If you are single, you're not deficient. You're not doing without. It is a gift that has been given to you. It does not mean that you are flawed or needing of something. You may, may, many have seemed to think that if you've never been married, then again, you need to level up. And I would admit, I think my grandparents thought this way. At least, I don't know if they would say that, but they kind of acted like it at times, that if, if you hadn't been married, then it's better to find some, anyone than to never find someone. Even one of their, their grandchildren, they cut a picture of one of, the, one of the family photos and took and blew it up, which everyone loves their face being blown up into an 11 by 8 picture, right? And would go around giving out this picture to potential suitors, <laughs> right? The matchmaking grandmother works every time, Right? That's not treating singleness on par with marriage. That is, that is saying, you know what, you are going without and we need to fix that. And that is, that is not how Paul talks about being single. He, he's talking about it as a gift, something that, you know what, that married people don't have. And again, Paul himself was single. Jesus was single. And so we need to do a better job ministering to and doing ministry with you, those of you who are single, because you are a status that are worthy of the king just as much as anyone who's married. And, and when we look around at our culture at large, singleness is on, on the rise, at a steady pace. If you look up Pew Research Center on their website, they published a study back in October. And in October, it, it shouldn't surprise any of us, here, go to the next one with the graph, that in the last 20 years, since 2000, or since the 90s, singleness has risen by 10 percentage points. It has gone from 29% of working adults ages 25 to 54 to 38. And that doesn't even count the 9% of people who are just cohabitating. So almost 50%, one out of every two people are not married. So, I mean, as the church, I'm not saying this is a necessarily a bad thing, but as the church, there's going to be many more single people and we need to be ready. We need to be ready to minister with and minister to these single people. And so talking about the freedoms that singles have, Paul directly talks about it later on in chapter 7, verse 32, where he says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And so if you are single, you, have, you don't have the things weighing on you like a family, like a person, your other half, you have to always go check things by or run things by. You have undivided ability to focus 
on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. An excellent example of this is a man, Harold John Ockengay. I had to be coached how to say that last name. Anyway, um, Harold John Ockengay probably has done more for the kingdom of God in North America in the last hundred years than any of us have ever met. Okay? Harold John Ockengay, he lived for 76 years. And I'll just read you some of his resume. He pastored 32 years at Park Street Church in Boston. If you talk to Pastor Ron, who has preached there at Park Street Church in Boston, if you're preaching at the pulpit and you look out the window to your right, you see John Revere's grave. Oh, Paul, I'm sorry. Paul Revere. Just making sure you guys are awake. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Paul Revere's grave. Okay, so he was there 32 years and he preached in the morning and he preached in the evening and all of them were put on the radio because his preaching was in such demand. He was such a great preacher. He also was one of the co-founders of Fuller Seminary and was their first president while he was still preaching in Boston. He co-founded Christianity Today magazine. He co-founded the National Association of Evangelicals. He founded the Evangelical Book Club, founded the World Evangelical Fellowship, wrote several books. And after then 32 years of ministry at at, um, Park Street Church, he resigned to become Gordon Conwell Seminary's president. I mean, talk about a resume for the kingdom here in America just in the few years that he was around. But then in 1969, he was invited back to his old church, Park Street Church in Boston. And he preached one last sermon there from Song of Solomon 1.6. Song of Solomon says in 1.6, it says, They made me a keeper of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have not kept. And it was a painful sermon because he had to go back to his church and apologize. He had been doing all these things for the kingdom of God, but not one of his children followed after Jesus. And he had to apologize to them because he had gotten his eye off the ball. He had neglected his other responsibilities that he had vowed to do. And even though he'd done all these other things for the kingdom, he had neglected the things that his number one mission field If you are single, you would never have to make that apology. You would never have to apologize for a spouse or for kids that don't follow after Jesus. Freedom is given. It's just different. But what if you were sitting here and you're saying, you know what? I don't want to be single. I am single, but I didn't choose this. I don't want this gift. Well, first, I am so sorry. That is really hard. But I also would say, just because you don't want the gift, I wouldn't waste it. And I would ask you, even if you're married or single, go to God and say, God, what do you want me to know and grow and get out of this gift of singleness or being married? Because it didn't surprise the Lord. And keep giving God your desires. And he many times likes to satisfy them, but for some reason he has you in the place that you are. But if God does want you to get married, I promise you'll get married because he is the best matchmaker. So Jesus paid it all, all my singleness to him I owe. And then lastly, Jesus paid it all, all my status to him I owe. 
all my status, if I am married or single, it is for a purpose. And it's not for self-fulfillment. It's not to be happy. It's, it's not for my own enjoyment even. It is to be devoted to God. We are to be devoted to Christ. And next week, we're going to be looking at uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, where, where Paul tells us that we are to live and lead the life that we have been assigned. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do in our marriages and in our singleness. So if you are married, be married well. If you are single, be single well. The problem is we have married people who want to act like they're single and single people who want to act like they're married. And so, that those, so those that are married, you've been given a sexual freedom in marriage, but also the responsibility of your family, of stewarding them. Of stewarding them. And if you are single, you've been given the freedoms to pursue Christ without having the responsibilities of a family. And in the next section, we, we don't have time to cover it today, but in verse 12 to 16, there's a major theme that goes through this whole section that he continues, starting verse 12, where he talks about married people who are married to a non-believing spouse. And what it says is, if you have a non-believing husband or a non-believing wife, your number one mission field is your spouse. And you are to live, even though they're not upholding their end of the bargain, even though they're not living and have their life founded on the same foundation of you, they're not living the same ways, you are to live a way that reflects Christ to them that will lead them to the cross. And we are in our singleness, we are to do the same thing. We are to lead lives, not to be the next bachelor or bachelorette, to, to the next party or fulfillment or whatever we want to do, but to lead other people and to lead ourselves to the cross. And I think there's a huge application in here that we miss most times. I think if you are a married couple in this room, I think something that you could do to that would be a great encouragement to the church is to find someone who is single and adopt them. Right? Think about it. If you are single, you might not have access to a family. But if you are a, a married couple and you just adopt a single into your family, what better way to wrap your arms around your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? If you are single, find a married couple and just encourage them. Maybe provide babysitting so they can go out on a date. I'm not speaking for me, but for a friend. Okay, just saying, just saying. But what a way to be the church to one another. And if you're sitting here and you go, you know, I have really messed up. I haven't lived out my marriage or I haven't lived out my singleness the way that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. I've... And I have consequences and, and my wrongs, you know, maybe it's the way I've treated my spouse. Maybe it's something I have said. Maybe it's even sexual immorality. Fortunately, we have a savior who walks through all of that with us because Jesus paid it all, all my status to him I owe because you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of Jesus. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time that we could get in your word and we can go over these difficult passages because there is tremendous hurt and pain. Um, Lord, I pray over our marriages of South Shores Church. I pray that they will be images 
of Christ and his church, that we will pursue each other in a way that helps our spouses pursue Jesus as well. And Lord, I pray for our singles. I pray for those that don't have a spouse, either by choice or not. Lord, I pray that they will live in the great freedom and gifting that you give them. Lord, help them to know that they are a full status along with marriage, that they, they are at the same playing field, that we love them, that we desire them, and they are, um, they are valued in our community and in your eyes, more importantly. And Lord, I just pray for our church that we will be a church that loves each other well, no matter our status, because Jesus paid it all, all my status to you we owe. Pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. So there was a lot in that message. Um, and you mentioned before we jumped into it that there were things that didn't make it in. That you just decided weren't quite right for where the message was going and um, what we needed to hear and learn from the passage. Do you remember any of them? For most messages, there's one or two clear uh, illustrations or stories that just don't make it. Mm -hmm. uh, for this particular message, I don't remember anyone's right off the cuff. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, for any message... And I would assume this is accurate for a number of the pastors that preach at church is I probably write at least double the amount of words that I speak mm. on a Sunday, meaning that uh, we, we write it and then you're just cutting. And so there was a lot that I cut. I don't think it was, there was any particular illustration mm -hmm. that I cut, but I, I definitely um, was paring down words that mm -hmm. I was using. And then even though I have a manuscript there up on the podium, I tend to not just read the manuscript. Right. Um, something that I, that I did choose to not read, I referenced and explained was the last four or five verses of the section. So, mm. uh, you know, first Corinthians seven verses 12 through 16 mm -hmm. really goes into, uh, the, the believer who's married to a non-believer. And many times that would have been because they, the wife or the husband became a believer after they were married. Right. And so I, I didn't read that section um, just for the sake of time. And so I, I quickly explained it. I don't like to do that a lot, but this mm -hmm. passage, uh, because I was already four minutes over, I, I needed to do that. So that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind that I, gotcha. I, I didn't cut per se, but I, I altered. Right, right. Um, so there, there's obviously a lot in this in this message, um, and we could probably have another hour-long podcast on it. But obviously, when, when talking before this, we mentioned people have been hurt by the church in various ways, particularly around these subjects that you covered. Um, like we, we, we interviewed um, Jessica for the message, um, and her experience with being single in the church was worse than just being single in the world. Um, what do you think is a point of application from this passage, from your message, that any given single person, any given single Christian could take like week to week? What do you think is like a good first step like with this new sort of knowledge that we all learned? I mean, I, I talked about it a little bit in the message, but I... Mm -hmm. I think 
really for marrieds and singles to see their status as a gift. Um, because I think how we think about God and where he has us determines a lot of how we grow and how he's able to use us. Mm. So for a single person, if they're already starting with the, the posture of I'm mad at you, God, and I want to be, want to be married or I want to be out partying and hooking up like I see my non-Christian friends doing, I have a hard time that person is then going to come to the realization that their single status is a gift. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do we trust God enough that our status didn't surprise him and he has us in a certain place for a reason? And so I would... I would Again, I, how do we see being married or single, really see that for a gift? And God, what, what do you have for me with this gift? What do you want to teach me? What do you want to show me? And more importantly, how do you want to use me? Yeah. Um, you kind of answered my second question then, because it was just going to be the same sort of thing for a married couple. Any given, because obviously that's, I think everybody out of the message well, then we had a marriage seminar right after, so which was <laughs> convenient um, on just effective communication. But um, I just wanted to. We mention, should have had a single seminar too. Should that? Yeah. This is the triggered podcast yeah. now. Not 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 <laughs> refuge anymore. Um, one thing I did want to talk about. Well, it was just interesting that you brought up. We run into issues a lot when we when our perception doesn't match something in scripture like this. Like Paul's telling us clearly. Singleness is a gift. Marriage, if anything, is kind of a burden um, to varying degrees, obviously. Do you have any, th- any other pastoral insights on that? Because I feel like perception runs into a lot of different issues in Christianity in, in a walk with Christ. Is We run ourselves into a wall when we're stuck looking at something in a certain way. And if we can't look at it from the lens of Scripture or anything else, we've run into more walls. Perception, right? Like we, we see... Even in the church, a lot of the hurt that we talked about comes from people thinking, like viewing um, marriage as like the end all be all, like the pinnacle of a godly life, right? But that's just a very closed perception of it, not looking at it through what we're actually taught in scripture. That happens with other things too. And we're not looking to get into all those things, but um, do you have any, I guess any maybe... Scriptures off the top of your head that you're thinking because you're a pastor. And I assume you should have the whole Bible memorized by now, right? Um, All, every word. Every word. In every different language, of course. But anything that you think is helpful when trying to change your perception? To change the perception mm-hmm. that one status isn't uh, an upgrade to the other. Mm-hmm. I think from the church side of things and church leadership even how we reference being married and reference how to be single Mm -hmm. uh, could change. Um, I'm saying big church, not necessarily South Shores. Sure. Uh, You know, how do we celebrate people that are faithful in singleness just as much as we celebrate people who are married in their faithfulness? So Mm -hmm. we, you know, even here at church, we've celebrated people who have been married 50, 60 plus years how do we celebrate singles who have been faithful in their Christian walk 
a decade, two decades, three decades, mm -hmm. who knows? Um, how do we, how do we elevate even those who are widowed? You know, they, they were faithful in marriage and they're being just as faithful in singleness. And so a lot of times you also need to, like even Jessica was saying, you can't always just say like the happy married couple. I mean, sometimes when you talk about the happy single person mm -hmm. and even uplifting the things that single people do for the kingdom and, and maybe even making the point, they were only able to do this because they didn't have the, the responsibilities of a family, of a spouse, of kids. Right. So I, I think just talking about it in that way. Um, and you know, most pastors I think are married. I think most churches wouldn't hire a single pastor. They almost see like, you know, being married is like the first interview that right. you were able to get someone to marry you. So right. you must be at least at some point, uh, like you okay have that person. constant accountability partner in a sense. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. you're not just like a predator roaming right. around. <laughs> right. So how, so I, I think for most pastors who are probably going to be married, they have to be constantly reminded of how to think about this from a single person, which like I said in the sermon, I, I got married in college and to my high school sweetheart. And for me, one thing that was difficult in this preparing this sermon was, um, and that speaking to marrieds and singles was that for me, my marriage is an oasis. Mm -hmm. So when things are crazy and they're topsy turvy, I like, I go to God and I go to Camden mm -hmm. and like, that is a, a place of refuge for me. And this passage makes it very clear that that's not for a lot of people. Right. And, and so I even, you know, just as I would put myself in a position of a couple who, who has struggled, uh, sexually because of tensions or mm -hmm. the, of conflict that they've had or, one of them even sinning sexually, um, I also had to put myself in the place of a single person and talk to several singles about what that is like and their struggles and even what they see as an upside to it. Right. And so to do that, you know, it just takes a little more thought and thinking through from different perspectives, I think. And I, I think if we do that well, I think singles will uh, feel like their status is just as valued in the church as, as marrieds. Yeah. Well, off of the heavy topics before we leave this week, um, when's the Pastor Micah movie coming out? Uh, We're dying to know. We are in negotiations at the moment, and my lawyer has advised me not to say anything else. <laughs> All right, guys, that's it for this week. We will see you, well, you'll hear us next week. Yeah.